Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Purity strikes me as the most mysterious of the virtues. And the more I think about it, the less I know about it. Flannery O'Connor. Good afternoon, listeners, and thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Alexis Shotwell about Against Purity, Living Ethically in Compromised Times. Now, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. And uh, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? So I came to philosophy in a kind of a roundabout way, a little bit. I did a philosophy bachelor's degree in Canada and then an MA in women's studies and philosophy. And then I went to an interdisciplinary PhD program in California called the History of Consciousness. And, and there you were doing this kind of very broad scope of things and you could have a concentration. So I sort of did these classes in science and technology studies and Marxist theory and race and racism and um, lots of things, Uh, and then also in phenomenology, and I worked with a wonderful Foucauldian named David Hoy, so so this kind of eclectic graduate education. And then, weirdly, I got a job teaching in a philosophy department in northern Ontario in a mining city called Sudbury, and I say that's weird because it seems to me that it, I don't know very many people who get jobs in philosophy departments with interdisciplinary PhDs. But, you know, the discipline tends to want you to be clearly demarcated as a philosopher. Um, it's got a purity impulse. So, so that was my uh, first job. And, and then for many reasons, I moved about six years ago. And now I teach primarily in a sociology department, so I'm cross-appointed in philosophy, and a lot of my friends are philosophers, and I still go to a lot of philosophy conferences, but I have a kind of complicated relationship with the discipline now, which has been very interesting. There does seem to be a lot of crossover, doesn't there, with other disciplines? Yeah, and I think especially there's a lot of people like me who find that it's very possible to to move and have conversations with theorists in other disciplines, and that those conversations really enrich the kind of philosophical thinking we can do, where I've felt that very strongly. And also, I think, because of moving to teach in the sociology department, I, I track a little bit the other philosophers who do social and political philosophy who end up moving to go to conferences and write papers and teach also in departments that are not strict philosophy departments. Although, obviously, there's also people doing wonderful 
political and social philosophy in philosophy departments, too. Yes, there is. Now, could you give us a definition of purity? So, yeah. So I think that purity is impossible. And in that sense, maybe we can't have it, you know, doesn't actually exist. But what people who are pursuing purity aim for is a clearly demarcated homogenous, so the same all the way through substance or ethical orientation or way of being in the world. And implicitly, one of the things that purity involves on a human level in terms of how it manifests ethically or spiritually is that it's only something that you personally can do. So it's also usually individualist. But as a concept, one of the things that I lay out in the book is the way that purity has been, it's been mobilized for a wide range of political ends, has a really deep connection with the history of racism. So making sure that we're imagining that distinct races exist that can be defined by, you know, usually blood quantum that should be separated, there shouldn't be racial mixing. So a lot of the ends that purity has been put to have been the things that I'm especially interested in and concerned by politically terms of how they manifest. Yes, that's a really good point. I was watching a program just recently and somebody who's a a very racist person, they had a DNA sample taken and it came Mm -hmm. back that they were a certain percentage Mm African-American. So, I mean, really, if if we all go back to our roots, we all have the same roots, don't we? Yeah, it's it's really amazing how many times people... Uh, encounter that kind of racial logic, and I guess that also shows us something about the way that the way that purity gets determined or delimited in terms of. I, my, I have a, a brilliant friend and colleague, Kim Talbert, who uh, wrote a book called Native American DNA, and she's a scientist who does work on what's wrong with DNA tests and what's wrong, especially with trying to determine indigenous identity based on DNA tests. And one of the things I think about a lot that she has said is that it doesn't matter what you claim about your identity. It matters who claims you, what communities you're, you're claimed by. And so, interestingly, you know, the, the move toward DNA tests, as, you know, in that example that you're giving, really flattens the possibility of, like, how are people related to each other, right? Who's connected? What are the family histories that mean that that person maybe has some of those DNA markers, maybe had African-American or black people in his family tree. What's the story that meant that he doesn't know that and that he thinks that there's such a thing as being a pure white person? So those are all the kinds of questions that come up, I think, as soon as we start thinking about purity. Why do you think that it might be better to understand complexity and indeed our own complexity in much of what we think of as bad or fundamental to our lives? Well, one of the things that I'm really interested in is what happens when we start trying to think about big problems or difficult problems, like climate change or the amount of plastic in the ocean right now. Um, what, what happens when we sort of try to think about, like, oh, this is, we understand there's a problem here. Look at all this. Look at these microplastics. Look at these you know, deep sea fishes 
eating tiny, tiny bits of plastic. And a purity impulse is to say, I'm never going to use any plastic again, right? I'm, I'm going to just be a completely plastic-free life, and I'll Instagram that, and so I'll be innocent. I won't be involved in producing this garbage in the ocean. And that's a really understandable impulse, and I actually think it's a lovely impulse in terms of saying how do we... How, how might we respond when we recognize that we're implicated in something that we think is horrible and wrong? But the problem with it is that we can't actually personally, individually solve plastic in the ocean through only our consumption practices. That that's, It's not going to do it. And if we think that we should solve racism, climate change, plastic in the ocean pesticides, leaky nuclear reactors, we very quickly will become, I think, despairing, shut down, unable to do anything, unable to work in the ways that actually we need to. So being able to look at ourselves and say, I am connected to this thing that I think is wrong. I'm part of a problem that I want to solve, which is the logic of that. And makes it possible for us instead to say, I'm not going to be able to personally solve this, but being called a hypocrite because I'm implicated in something that I think is bad doesn't shut me down. It doesn't make me stop working on the problem. So understanding how complex everything is can actually give us attraction for seeing how we're connected and then how we might work collectively on some of the problems we face. That's a good point. What is disturbance regime? Uh, This is a lovely phrase from Hannah Singh, who has written a beautiful book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. She's an anthropologist, and she traces this one particular mushroom, the Matsaki mushroom, that only grows in areas that have been disturbed. And it's a great delicacy in Japan, uh, but it needs to grow on roadsides or in forests where the pigs have walked through. And Singh uses this mushroom. She, she looks at it carefully, and one of the things that she thinks about with it is what it means for us to recognize that there's no originary place where we are free from the effects of environmental degradation, capitalism, social harm. There's no nothing we can go to that we can find that's not touched, right, by humans. So she says, we're living in a disturbance regime. We're, we're all like the Matasake mushroom in that way. We're all, we're all part of a world that if we're going to flourish, it's going to be after it's been disturbed. So there's no going back to some simplicity or, in my, in my terms, purity. So she says, you know, we're all making lives in the ruins of past lives, and that's, that's just where we start. I find her work very honest and and also very hopeful. Yeah. Look, I've got chemical sensitivities and and I've found it's pretty well impossible to avoid chemicals in the world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I I have chemical sensitivities too. Yeah, so and so one of the things that I think about a lot is when I say I'm against purity, I'm not saying I I think all of us should just deal with being exposed to chemicals that make us sick or having, you know, oil spills that mean that we can't drink water or... So I think what we need to have 
as a goal, as a as a as a normative good, is ways of pursuing worlds where you and I can go into a public place and not get ill that don't rely on narratives that say we need to have a, a pristine environment, even though what we might need is an environment that doesn't have these particular things in it, because if we breathe them, we won't be able to think for, or, you know, I don't know what happens to you, but for me, it's very, someone who relies on thinking and understanding things, the first way that I know that I'm having a reaction, other than, you know, sneezing and things, is that suddenly, like, I just can't understand anything, I can't think about anything, I get these very fuzzy head hours and days. So it's like, what does it mean for, for me to say we need to pursue worlds in which these chemicals aren't suffusing my life and the lives of other people without calling on narratives of purity to pursue that? So the way that I think about that is we really need to pursue worlds in which many worlds can flourish, worlds in which many lives can be lived. And so that means that something like particular chemicals that those of us with multiple chemical sensitivities react to, we can look and say, in order for me to flourish, me and other people like me, this needs to not be in my air. What happens? Why is this in my air? Right? What is this doing? What's it for? What does it, what does it do, and for whom? And you know, a lot of the time, it's often it's solvents or surfactants that end up also having downstream effects on amphibians, on critters that live in the water, on plants, on you know. So often, these things that people are reacting to are also hurting the world in some way. They're making smaller worlds where fewer lives can be lived. And often they're doing that for money, right? Like they're, they're doing it so that someone can make a profit. So when we start kind of drilling down to ask what it would mean to have a non-purist account of making worlds, you do sometimes get to the point where you're like, well, I guess what we need to fundamentally do is just totally transform capitalism, which might seem as daunting as fixing the problem of plastic in the ocean. So that's a, that's a result that happens definitely agree with you about capitalism. Now, I think you've partly answered this, but could you explain what being against purity means? Being against purity, yeah. So it means saying instead of aiming to make clearer and clearer demarcations and instead of aiming to make the insides of those demarcations homogenous and clearly clearly defined, we're going to aim to nourish and support a particular kind of complexity that might look like mess or might look like uh, something that's unpredictable that has many points of connection. So being against purity, I think, is being for proliferation of uh, many different kinds of flourishing. In the book, I, I talk about the indigenous Zapatista movement in Chiapas, and the way that they phrase this is to say, we need one no 
which is a no against the form of life that's ruining everything, and many yeses. We need a, a world in which many worlds can live. So being against purity is being for complexity, and it's being responsible for complicity, and it's being for a way of living that values connection and a kind of emergent bit-by-bit approach to transforming the world into that kind of world where many worlds can live. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Alexis Shotwell about Against Purity. What is the importance of critical memory practices? Yeah, so one of the ways that I think about purity is in the impulse that people may have to distance ourselves from histories that we inherit. So I moved from, I was born in the U.S., and I moved to Canada when I was 14. My family moved. And in the U.S., many of the avoidant memory practices involve white people saying, I never owned any slaves, so I'm not responsible for anti-black racism. In Canada, there's a real erasure. People don't remember that there were chattel slaves here in Canada. But also in Canada, there's an erasure of the past of genocidal Canadian government practices toward Indigenous people here, and a sense also that we're, we're done with all of that. That history is over. I also have been doing work on an oral history project about the history of AIDS activism in Canada. So people who were working on the problem of Canadian governmental inaction Um, when HIV emerged and the AIDS crisis was uh, hitting the gay community especially hard. So critical memory practices are drawing on a tendency that says we need to understand the way that we are placed in relation to a history that we did not choose but that we cannot deny. So we we can take up a way of remembering the past that is Sue Campbell, who's a philosopher who died a couple of years ago. She calls it a way of remembering the past that is remembering for the future. So it's a way of taking responsibility for our inheritance so that we can transform the effects of that history. So in thinking about the inheritance that many of us in this world have of living in places that we live in because of indigenous genocidal practices toward indigenous peoples, we can ask, what would it mean to be in right relation now, recognizing the full scope of that history, not pretending that it didn't happen, in relation to something like the practices of activists of the past who struggled around HIV and AIDS, we can ask, what world do I inherit because of the work that they did that is often forgotten? 
what would a practice of responsibility now be toward that kind of work of the past? So resistant remembering is another way that um, I think about it, and I follow a, a theorist named Gary Kinsman in that. So he talks about the social organization of forgetting and the resistance of remembering. And, and that, I think, is a really powerful concept of recognizing that people don't forget things by accident. There's a social world that produces forgetfulness socially. And so remembering in, in opposition to that is also a way of placing ourselves on the side of complexity and complicity and refusing a narrative about purity that says that I'm not involved in that. It, instead, we recognize I'm involved in that. I inherit that. And I'll remember that in the work that I do. How has a great deal of harm been done based on a metaphysics of purity? Mm. Yeah, so this comes back. I mean, this is actually, a, I mean, this does connect to the question of whether it's rationalized. I think, I think a, lot, a lot of what happens based on a metaphysics of purity is tied into legacy of, of the Enlightenment, which, of course, brought us many wonderful things, but also delimited an idea that there were better and worse uh, races of people. So in the book, I trace the ways that, and this is also connected to a long history of work, especially by black philosophers who have traced roots of racism in European philosophical work that determined who was human enough to be rational, right? Who was human enough to think. So the metaphysics of race that produce a metaphysics of purity, I think we can recognize are always entangled. They're always connected. So anyone who says that there is such a thing as racial purity is someone who is pursuing, I mean, I think I can say this, like anyone who says that there's such a thing as racial purity is someone who's pursuing bad ends, right? Is someone who has a politically troubling metaphysic. And so not just looking at the past, right? Like not just looking at Kant and his his delimiting of who counts as someone who is rational, right? Someone who can think, who can be fully human, but also looking at the context that I'm most familiar with in North America. White supremacists here are absolutely obsessed with blood purity and with determining who is really white. They're obsessed with determining who is really worthy of living And so these are enactments of a metaphysics of purity. And we don't have to move very far to recognize that those practices, right, those attempts to say, you deserve to be inside the nation, you deserve to have the protection of law, that these things are just right away politically reprehensible, and they produce worlds in which people die. So I think that we can... When we look, we can say, ah, like any time someone's doing that operation, they're probably someone we should worry about. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we haven't already mentioned? I guess, you know, maybe the thing I would close on is just to, to say that I think writing this book, there's, a, there's bits that we haven't talked about around 
nuclear power and its after effects and about pesticides and herbicides. And I think that the main thing that I, there was quite a lot that was profoundly troubling and sad. And I learned a lot of things about purity practices that made me feel very worried about the world. And at the same time, I, I really left writing this book with a lot of hope and inspiration for the ways that in the midst of all of the trouble and all of the difficulty that we have, people really work hard to be continuously crafting worlds in which many people can flourish and many beings can live and many ecosystems can come back. So I think it's maybe kind of a depressing thing to think about, but at the same time there's there's a lot of possibility and and continuous, like, lovely work that people are doing to, to create an ongoingness, right, a capacity for the world to continue. So that's the only, the only thing that I think we um, really need is some sense that this is all very terrible and we can actually come together and work on it. It's not over. Yeah, no, that's that is really uplifting. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Doc. And I've been speaking to Associate Professor Alexis Shotwell about Against Purity. Thanks for listening to Radical Philosophy. Hope you've enjoyed the program, and I've certainly enjoyed your company.